everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have University of North Carolina law professor Carissa Hessick. She's the author of Punishment Without Trial, Why Plea Bargaining is a Bad Deal. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So I've noticed anecdotally, we started uh, doing a court watch program actually in 2010. And when we started, it was mainly following trials. And over the years, I I decided to focus more and more on prelims because if you just focus on trials, you're you're missing 97% of what's happening in the court system. And it seems like even over the last decade, um, it's getting a lot worse. Um, So you're entirely right that watching trials is going to give you a really incomplete view of the criminal justice system, because as you said, 97 and in some places, 98% of people plead guilty rather than proceeding to trial. And we have every reason to think that it's not random, the people who proceed to trial. So the the sample that you would see if you just rushed trials would be skewed, probably in particular ways. Um, and then on top of that, you're also right that the trend seems to be uh, fewer and fewer trials. Just a, just a few years ago, uh, when people would talk about um, the, the percentage of cases that plead guilty, they would say 95% of cases plead guilty. But the number of trials, the number of cases proceeding to trial, the percentage of cases proceeding to trial has shrunk even further. So the trend is um, to really not use trials as the way in which we determine guilt or innocence, but instead to dispose of all of these cases through, uh, usually through negotiations, through plea bargaining. Every once in a while, you get a person who will plead guilty without the benefit of a plea bargain. But most of the people who are pleading guilty are pleading guilty in return for something from the prosecutor. And what exactly that thing would be is something that their attorney, or if they don't have an attorney, they themselves have worked out with the prosecutor beforehand. And then when they show up to court to actually plead guilty and have the conviction entered against them, it's, it's in some ways just a formality. So why have trials virtually disappeared? Oh, you're asking, you know, the the $10 million question. And despite having spent a lot of time looking at this, I I can't give you a clear answer, or at least I can't give you a single answer um, that covers 
sort of the span of time in which we've seen the rise of the guilty plea. Um, I think we can attribute it to a number of different things. I mean, we can, uh, people first started pleading guilty, it, um, I think because it just, or, or plea bargaining rather, just because it occurred to them that it might be a good idea that they could be more efficient if uh, the defendant and the prosecutor worked things out beforehand um, and they might be able to negotiate an outcome that they'd like better than the all or nothing approach of a trial. I think of it almost like, um, you know, like any other good idea, like when, uh, when Henry Ford came up with the assembly line, right? He just looks at a situation and thought to himself, I can make this more efficient. And I think we have some reason to believe that that's how plea bargaining started as well. It became more efficient. Um, however, when plea bargaining first started, um, it, it was done in secret. And to the extent that people found out about it, um, there was usually a big outcry. And interestingly enough, the outcry isn't the sort of um, outcry that we hear nowadays. Most of the people who are complaining about plea bargaining nowadays are complaining that it gives prosecutors too much power and it leaves defendants um, without many rights um, and they often have to accept really punitive plea deals. That's not what people complained about when plea bargaining first started. They complained that they thought it was corrupt and that it was a problem because the law was set up to be enforced as written. And to the extent that the parties were bargaining around that, the result is going to be a punishment for the defendant that people thought was too lenient and that they thought was, was inappropriate, right? It, it, looked, it looked like corruption. It looked like, like you know, um, like people getting off for uh, agreeing to do something that they weren't really supposed to do. So that was the, I think, the idea that it could be efficient was the reason that people started. But for a long time, people, people outside of the criminal courts themselves thought that it was wrong and shouldn't happen. In terms of how it became more accepted, that's, it's hard to say, right? There's a, there's a great paper out there by a, a law professor named Will Ortman, where he studies sort of the moment in time where it became clear how many places were engaged in plea bargaining and people started to accept it. And he traces it to the 1920s and the 1930s when um, states and cities started engaging in these studies of their criminal court system. Interesting stories about what led various places to decide that they had to conduct these studies, but they would do things like bring in prominent law professors um, or other people who aren't really involved in the criminal justice system and ask them to look into how the courts were being operated. And it was those studies in lots of different places over the span of you know, 10 or so years where people discovered that plea bargaining was widespread in some of these courts. Again, we saw the backlash, the claims about corruption, calls to impeach judges who were allowing it to go on. But I think it might be because it was found to be occurring so many different places um, that it eventually people just learned to live with it. And then they learned to embrace it because, you know, if you're running a city or if you're running a courtroom or if you're running a state, saying that you want to do things efficiently sounds pretty good, right? And especially if you have funding shortfalls, um, then encouraging more guilty pleas is a way to quickly process cases. Now, there are lots of other theories about what it was that led to the rise of plea bargaining and why it sort of became normalized. 
But I'll say that none of those theories really explain why plea bargaining is the dominant mode of resolving cases right now. And there, I think the answer might just be that um, that it's cultural, right? Uh, that the expectations have flipped. People assume a case is going to plea bargain, and most of us end up conforming to expectations. If you assume that something's going to happen, then you take steps that are likely to, to lead you down that path. So if, if you're a defense attorney and you have a client who's been indicted, the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to um, start putting together whatever materials you're going to bring to talk to the prosecutor about how to resolve the case, as opposed to building a trial strategy. Now, some defense attorneys will tell you that their trial strategy is what allows them to, uh, to get a good deal from a prosecutor. And I'm, I'm sure that that's true. Um, but at the same time, uh, because everybody expects the case to plead guilty, I think that's what the prosecutor is going to expect. It's what the judge is going to expect. We see judges punishing defendants, giving them longer sentences if they refuse to plead guilty. And we see prosecutors as well doing the same thing saying that they'll bring additional charges if defendants don't plead guilty. And since everybody thinks guilt, pleading guilty is the normal thing to do, people don't stop and think about what that means. We're allowing government official, government's officials to punish people for exercising a constitutional right. But that's where we are today, is the system is set up to punish you if you insist on going to trial which sounds like exactly, I don't know, it sounds exactly backwards, both in terms of what a constitutional right is supposed to be, but also in terms of what I think most Americans think is happening. I think most Americans have um, a sort of schoolhouse rock view of the criminal justice system. The police suspect someone, they arrest them, the prosecutor decides whether to bring charges, then there's a trial and a jury decides. And unfortunately, that's just not what we see. So. Implicit in your subtitle, why plea bargaining is a bad deal, is the idea that this is a bad thing. Um, I mean, I could make, you know, I think a pretty good case that maybe it's a good thing. You know, the, uh, the courts would grind to a halt if every single case went to trial. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, the defendants uh, are risking uh, a lot. Uh, by going to trial as opposed to, um, you know, taking a plea. Um, you know, so why is this a bad thing? Sure. Well, um, so to take the two arguments that you just made, right, we don't have the resources to try these cases, and um, it's too big of a risk for defendants to run. I'd say that I think both of those arguments just assume that plea bargaining is available and it's a good idea. And, and what if we assumed the opposite for a second? Um, what if we assumed that plea bargaining wasn't supposed to be an option for resolving cases, that we, did, we would have to bring cases to trial? Well, um, first of all, I think that the criminal, that the cases that get brought would look a lot different, right? So you say we wouldn't be able to try all of the defendants that we convict now. And implicit that in that is the idea that we should be convicting all of the people that we try now. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And there's actually a number involved here that I think most Americans don't know. And frankly, I'll tell you, I didn't know it until a few years ago. 
And that number is 13 million. 13 million of the 14 million criminal cases brought every year in America are misdemeanors. So that's to say that they're not particularly serious criminal cases. In fact, an awful lot of them are things that were like, oh God, I wish you wouldn't do that. But we don't necessarily think about as being criminal, like drunken disorderly or public urination. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to see people urinating in public either. But when, when I think to myself, that's a crime or crime is a problem, I'm thinking about felonies. I'm thinking about serious cases where people are getting hurt or placed in really, really, really big danger. And if we have a system where we need to process all of our cases through trials, I bet that that 13 million number is not 13 million. I bet it's really, really different. I bet it's significantly smaller. So that's one number I want to give you. The other number that I want to give you is 25%. We right now, just, just looking at federal criminal cases, because we have better data when it comes to federal cases than state cases. Um, in the 15 years from, oh, no, no, it was more than that. Like the 25 years from 1990 to like 2015, that 25 year span, we held, we, um, the number of trials decreased so that it was 25% as much as it used to be. Right. So there were like almost 8,000 federal criminal trials in the year 1990. And then there were like about 2,000, less than 2,000 in the year 2015. So that's to say that we can have many more trials than we're having right now, but we don't. In fact, we have only 25% the number of federal criminal trials that we used to have, even though we have way more prosecutors and way more judges than we had in 1990. So the system actually has capacity to, to try more cases. They've just decided not to because instead what they've decided to do is to process cases efficiently. And I think these num what I hope that these numbers do is they illustrate that one, the assumptions that, we've, that we have just aren't necessarily borne out in fact. But two, once you have a system that can do things efficiently, then that system doesn't have to be as responsive as other systems are. And I'll, I'll give you an example. If you look at a chart of the crime rate in the United States, right? Again, let's, let's put the misdemeanors to one side, but let's talk about like property crimes or violent crimes. The crime rate has gone down steadily in the United States since the mid-1990s. The number of people that we send to jail go, has gone up. So we've decoupled sort of like the output of the criminal justice system from the input, which is to say we're convicting more people and punishing more people, even though fewer people are committing crimes. And I don't think that that's the system that America wants either. We think that, it, that the system should be related to people who commit crimes, get punished, and not, well, we're going to just expand the capacity so that more and more and more and more people are being jailed um, uh, than previously. And the more efficient we can be, the more people go into jail. So that's, uh, that's what I'd say there. And then the last piece of it 
that this can be beneficial to defendants because going to trial is a real risk. I'd say going to trial is a risk only because we've set up this alternative system, right? A system of we're going to use mandatory minimums to pressure people into pleading guilty or judges are going to impose a long sentence, a trial penalty on somebody who insists on a trial rather than pleading guilty. If we didn't set up a system like that, then the outcome of pleading guilty would be similar to the outcome of proceeding to trial. And then maybe what you'd have is the people who are pleading guilty are the people who are just like, you know what? I am guilty and I don't want to go through the embarrassment of having the, the prosecution prove that in open court. I want to resolve this as quickly as possible and serve my sentence, whatever it might be, and try to just get back to the status quo. That's why we let people plead guilty is because some people are like, I just want to acknowledge it. I just want to say I'm guilty and get it over with. But we've definitely lost sight of that in a plea bargaining process. We have people plead guilty because we've made it so unattractive to have a trial that even innocent people will plead guilty or people will plead guilty to more severe crimes than what they actually engaged in because the prosecutor really gets to drive the bus here. So you kind of anticipated my next question, which was going to be, um, to kind of explain what the trial penalty is. Yeah, so it depends, right? Like the trial penalty is, it's just this name that we give to the idea. Uh, usually we talk about it in terms of what judges will do as opposed to what prosecutors do, but some people refer to it just as the difference between the, the amount of punishment that someone receives if they go to trial as opposed to what happens if they plead guilty. Some people, by the way, want to call it a plea discount. They say the amount of time that somebody uh, you know, has to spend in jail or in prison for their crime is being reduced in recognition of them pleading guilty and they're getting the benefit of their plea bargain. I have to say I have a very hard time accepting the term plea discount, especially because you know, you can find examples of lawmakers passing laws and saying, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, this seems like a really harsh sentence, but most people aren't going to serve it. They're going to plead guilty to a lesser crime. And it's only the really bad people that will have to serve this particular sentence. In other words, when legislatures are writing these laws, they don't expect them to be imposed on everyone. Um, so they they're well, they intended that lesson in Colorado, right? With uh, that guy's uh, hundred year sentence, and they had to rethink that. Exactly. I think I think that the the Colorado case is a cautionary tale, right? That guy wouldn't accept the plea bargain because he thought it was too harsh. He thought like this isn't enough of a discount. They're still insisting, I forget what it was, were they going to make him serve a 10-year sentence? They were going to make him serve he, he a 20. serving 10, um, or, or at least being sentenced to 10 after the governor got involved, uh, which means he can get out in five. Um, but yeah, I thought it was like 20, um, which I agree. I mean, I 
you know, I even think that 10 is too long given the facts of that case, but it's certainly a lot better than the alternative. It's, it's true, but I actually, I think the Colorado case is a good illustration about the lie that, um, that we tell ourselves about plea bargaining, right? And we see this, the Supreme Court cases where they've said plea bargaining is constitutional, we can allow it. They say because it's a give and take negotiation between the defendant and the prosecutor. But I think that the Denver case shows that it's not really, it's not, it's not you are offering to sell me something and you and I are going to negotiate over the price. And if I don't like the price that you're willing to offer, I can just walk away. The plea bargaining person can't walk away. There's no market for plea bargains. That guy couldn't say, okay, well, I'll try the DA in the county over and see what deal he's willing to offer me. That's not true. It's the, the prosecutor sets the price and then the defendant can either take that plea deal or face the risk of paying a significantly higher price if they go to trial. And it's funny, sometimes people who will go to trial and face the trial penalty. So they'll say, look, I think, you know, my chances of acquittal are high enough that I should take this gamble. But it also means that the super long sentences, you know, the high trial penalties, they probably end up getting imposed on the people who like against whom the evidence is the weakest, the people who are most likely to be innocent, because those are the people who are more likely to take the gamble and try to proceed to trial. So it's this like strange irony. It's also this strange irony, it's this paradox almost that right? Plea bargains become too good to pass up if they're particularly lenient. And so some people say, well, we should cap the ability of prosecutors to, to discount things in the plea bargaining. And I'm like, yeah, so all that's going to do is just make sure that more people get long sentences, right? All you've done is limited the upside of the plea bargain in an attempt to make it seem less coercive. I think these problems, right, these sort of paradoxes with plea bargaining actually are, are evidence that plea bargaining itself is deeply problematic and not really compatible with a system that's supposed to be about determining truth and dispensing justice. So um, a similar example was one of the first cases I ever covered. A guy was accused of a uh, a series of sexual assaults against his uh, adopted daughter. And he ends up going to trial because um, there was really not a lot of evidence. He believed he was innocent. I've come to believe he's innocent. Um, and he gets found guilty and gets 378 years. Um, and, you know, he probably could have pled out at 20. Um, in which case, you know, he'd be coming up on parole now. Um, so there's that, but, you know, part of, you know, and I've gone through this and I've been watching, you know, jury trials for 15 years now. I got to tell you, I, you know, I think that juries get it wrong half the time in a hard case. Like, you know, most cases... You know, you kind of know who did it and you know that they did it and, and you know, they may be weighing mitigation and 
all sorts of factors. And, you know, those aren't hard cases, right? But the hard case is, you know, uh, there isn't a lot of evidence. There's a he said, she said, not a lot of corroboration. And you got to make uh, a judgment call in those cases. I think that's that's a coin flip uh, as to whether or not the jury gets it right. So, you, I mean, so so do you take your 20 years and or do you roll the dice even if you're innocent? And 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 say, yeah, I, you know, I think I, I, I'm innocent. I, I'm not going to admit to anything. That's what he said. He never thought he could get convicted of something he didn't do. Um, I mean, it's a problem. Yeah. So so two thoughts. So first of all, um, the the risk of an innocent person being convicted at trial, like we shouldn't ignore that. Right. I mean, the. The person, one of the first people that I interviewed for the book uh, was person was a person who'd pleaded guilty to a murder he didn't commit. Like he's been exonerated by DNA evidence. They found the real killer. Like this guy didn't do it. He pleaded guilty. And I asked him, I was like, do you regret pleading guilty? And, um, and it took, he like sort of wasn't giving me a, what I'd call a straight answer. And I finally really had to push him on it. And he was like, my regret is that I didn't negotiate myself a better deal. And I was like, what are you talking about? You didn't kill the guy. And he was basically like, I think the jury would have convicted me anyways. And he did. I mean, they had, you know, false confessions from some other people saying that they did it. I mean, like, he was like, I think that they would have convicted me anyways. And so, like, my regret is that I didn't get a better plea bargain. And it's not like this is a one-off occurrence. If you look at like the, the National Registry of Exonerations or, you know, the cases that innocent projects take off or something like that, the people who have been exonerated are disproportionately people who went to trial. Now, I'll say I don't think that necessarily means that more guilty people are being convicted at trials than are pleading guilty. Like there are big systemic reasons for that. One is that um, in ha- proceeded to trial, these people get appeals and they get new lawyers conducting new investigations. And that's how they often uncover the evidence of their innocence. That's one thing. Another thing is a lot of these exonerations are DNA evidence. And some states have rules that don't let people who pleaded guilty actually test the DNA evidence. So there are systemic reasons that sort of lead to that. But nonetheless, the risk of an innocent person being convicted by a jury is real. And I don't want to discount that. That said, though, what's the alternative? And I'm glad that you mentioned sexual assault because I think for progressives, and I should, I should preface this by saying, like, I don't consider myself a progressive, but I talk to a lot of progressives because, you know, I talk to a lot of criminal justice reformers, and many of them are progressives, and they point to sexual assault cases as a reason to keep plea bargaining, because they say the acquittal rates in these cases are higher, a lot of victims don't want to testify, we need to have plea bargaining in these cases, we need to give prosecutors some leverage because it's better to convict these people for something than it is to have them acquitted. I have to tell you, I am uncomfortable with that answer because if all we're going to do is think about the people and the crimes that upset us the most, then we're always going to endorse disproportionate state power 
really, really, really long criminal justice, uh, really, really, really long sentences and like terrible conditions in prison that lead to, you know, rapes and, and, and beatings and don't have people like having decent amounts of food. That, I, I don't think that that's the test that we should be using when we assess whether we should have plea bargaining or not. And I do think our system was designed, and I think correctly so, that if we're going to have errors, that the errors should be to err on the side of acquittal. And that's what we should be doing. I'm not sure that we do it nearly enough anymore. And there is some historical evidence to suggest that the rise of plea bargaining um, sort of dovetailed with the rise of more professional police forces and more professional uh, prosecution offices. And these professionals were like, these idiot jurors are getting it wrong. So let's bypass them. But you know what, David, I don't know about you, but do I think that juries are always going to get it right? No, I think some jurors like don't pay very good attention in the trial. I think some of them are like, you know, infected by bias. Like I think a lot of bad things probably happen in jury rooms, but I think you're likely to see at least some of those bad things. If you look at the government officials who right now are making the decisions instead of juries and that's police and prosecutors. I think it would be shocking if those offices don't also have people who are sometimes being lazy and not paying enough attention to the evidence and who are infected by bias. I don't know that the proportional breakdown is the same or not, but I do know that we aren't going to see the same socioeconomic backgrounds and the same racial backgrounds and backgrounds and frankly the same level of maybe negative interactions with law enforcement officers that we do when we see a jury. And at the end of the day, you know, just as I'm just as I'm constantly disappointed by American voters, I nonetheless think that we should have elections. I imagine I would also be disappointed by juries, but I nonetheless think we should have trials. I mean, that's an interesting point. Um, I, you know, I've just, I don't know, I, I'm a, I guess I would consider myself a skeptic on both that, um, you know, I've seen a lot of misconduct and errors by police and prosecutors, but I've also seen a lot of errors by jurors as well. And I also think a lot of jurors, um, you know, interpose the, uh, uh, you know, guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty. I mean, I, I rarely have seen a case where there's an acquittal on a coin flip case. It, it, uh, you know, a coin flip case is always going to be guilty. You've got to prove them innocent, uh, which is why I, I think a lot of defense attorneys actually make, make the error of not putting on a positive defense uh, because uh, they're not going to get an acquittal that way. Um, so you know what, David, can I just say really quickly? I think you're right. And I do, it does make me wonder that to a certain extent, whether criminal justice reformers might not spend more time trying to educate the public about what proof beyond a reasonable doubt is supposed to mean. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt shouldn't be well, the prosecutor's story seems more plausible than the defense story. It's a much higher threshold than that. And frankly, I have my suspicions that that's why um, a lot of jurors uh, with legal backgrounds don't get seated, 
because they're like, well, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a really high standard. I mean, I know legal standards. You know, we've got all these legal standards that we use outside the criminal justice system that are significantly lower than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So I think a lot of lawyers go into jury duty being like, all right, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not sure they've got it. And that's why they don't get past war dear. <laughs> so, you know, um, one other, uh, you know, thing I wanted to kind of bounce off you. Uh, I, in the pre-COVID days, um, I got a chance to watch a number of uh, trials and hearings in San Francisco. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about San Francisco is the public defender's office doesn't go in there with the idea that they're going to plead out these cases. They go into these cases prepared to take every single one to trial and they litigate like everything. Like I've never seen more motions to suppress and more pitches motions than, uh, than I've seen in, in, in San Francisco. And a lot of this was pre, uh, you know, Chase of Bodine days, but, um, you know, they did take a lot of things to trial that you would never see anywhere else. And they got a lot of acquittals, um, probably half their cases ended up uh, getting acquittals, uh, maybe even more than half. Um, so it, it was really a very different mentality and it seemed to work, like they didn't bog down the system there. So it does seem like, you know, there is room and I, I think your 25% figure also speaks to that. Um, but, you know, most places, you know, they're kind of shocked when a defense attorney goes in uh, and doesn't take the first plea agreement that gets offered. So you're right, and I don't want to I don't want to undersell the role here that um, of culture because it's a mistake to think that culture is national culture. It's it's not right. There's a there's this interesting book by a sociologist, and she so she says that plea bargaining spread almost like. Um, almost like these maps that we see about illness spreading, that it was like um, the culture changed over time. And I think that the culture in defense attorneys' offices matter, as does the culture on the bench with the judges and the culture in the prosecutor's office. Look, if a judge is just sort of like, great, we're setting this for trial and discovery has to be completed now, that sets a very different tone than a judge who's like, okay, we'll have the party. Have you had a chance to consult with your client? Talk to your client again. Oh, I'm sorry the prosecutor didn't turn over discovery. Let's set a new, let's set a new court date. We'll come in for the next hearing. Right? There's those send different messages. And then again, the, the sentences that they hand down send different messages. But then also, too, prosecutors' offices can decide what their plea bargaining system looks like. They can decide, some places have decided this, that if a defense attorney files a suppression motion, that the plea deal goes away. They can do that. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no entitlement to a guilty, to a, a plea bargain. So they can say, if you file a suppression motion, this is going to go away. That's what they can do. Other places can say, We'll litigate the suppression motion on this on this theory, and we'll take. And if you lose here, we can take a conditional guilty plea that allows your client to appeal it to the court of appeals. Different prosecutors take different approaches there. 
Some prosecutors, they're very clear. If you don't take the plea deals, then we supersede the indictment with the more serious charge. Other places say, this is our standard plea deal. If you don't want to take it, that's fine. We go to trial on these charges. So some of this is policy decisions by individual actors. And then I think some of it is also just expectations. You know, someone told me a story once um, about how the the prosecutors in one place decided to start demanding um, waivers, appeal waivers in uh, in the plea bargaining cases, and all the defense attorneys were just like, "Yeah, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna plead our pe- we're not gonna plead our people with that term in it." And so the prosecutor was like, "Oh, okay, then I'll stop pushing for that." And then five years later, they did the same thing and didn't get the same pushback. And now it's standard in all of their waivers. And if you say my client won't agree to that, then they say then the plea's off the table. So I do think that you're right, different things happen different places. And that's one of the reasons why in the book, I tried to tell lots of stories from lots of different places, because the problems that I'm trying to describe look different in different courthouses, but the problem itself endures. And the problem is uh, the prosecutor or the judge can decide and just it's and and the people just have to accept it. We haven't set up a system that allows those sorts of decisions to have any sort of meaningful challenge. Um, and I think that's really problematic and it results in all sorts of other bad things happening. The, the passing of new laws with mandatory minimum sentences, the passage of laws that are totally unclear what they mean. Um, having more people be detained pre-trial because the assumption is they're all going to plead guilty and then they might as well just have them start serving their sentence already, or they'll give them a sentence of time served. All of these sort of like the way we look at the system has shifted. And I think it's led to a lot of pathologies, frankly, for lack of a better word, that make our system a lot less just. So what is your fix? Mm. I wish I had a fix. I don't have a fix, right? The easy, right? The easy thing to say is, well, let's abolish plea bargaining. I don't recommend that. I don't recommend it for a number of reasons. First of all, it won't work. I'm convinced it won't work. Um, they've tried that in some places and there was always plea bargaining sort of on the sly because, um, because it's true that in some cases, both sides are really motivated to, to, to resolve the case on terms other than what the law says. So there's that. Um, The other reason that I don't say it is because we've built the system now to make plea bargaining easy, if we just got rid of plea bargaining, we'd have a terrible system, right? The system that we have right now, for example, it keeps a lot of of poor people in jail before trial. Um, But if those people are going to be given an opportunity to plead guilty three days after they get arrested, that doesn't seem like a terrible system. But if those people aren't going to be given an opportunity to plead guilty three days after they're arrested, they're sitting in jail for months waiting for their case to go to trial. And they'd never get a sentence as long as the time that they ended up spending in jail. Mandatory minimums too, right? The people who wrote those laws didn't expect them to be applied to everyone. They expected them to be used as bargaining chips and then imposed on the people who actually committed significantly worse crimes but didn't get charged with those. Those laws would all still be on the books. So if we just get rid of plea bargaining, 
we've got sort of like the worst, most punitive system that we've built to make plea bargaining easy. And then we've removed the safety valve that is plea bargaining. So that's a long way of me telling you what I don't think the fix is. But your question wasn't what's not the fix. Your question was, what is the fix? And the fix is lots of little things that we need to change. First of all, I think Americans need to understand that when their legislature is considering a new bill with mandatory minimums, that is not the sentence that people will receive. It is a way to make sure that people don't go to trial. We should know that. People don't know that. I mean, I, you know, I know you, David, know an awful lot about the criminal justice system, but I think most Americans don't. You know, I'm the first person in my family to go to law school. And so I'm the only lawyer that most of them know. And then when I go to family reunions, I end up talking to them and they think most people go to trial. They think these mandatory minimums get imposed. They think they think police solve most crimes. They think all sorts of things about the criminal justice system that just aren't true. And I think if we did a better job informing the public, that could really, really help some of the problems that I've, ident- I've identified. We need to largely get rid of mandatory minimums. We need to really limit pre-trial detention. We need to do things for the sorts of plea bargains that aren't motivated by pre-trial detention or mandatory minimums. The one that's just like the person who has to come back to court seven times because the, the trial judge hasn't set a trial date and they have to keep coming in and coming in and coming in. It's this, academics call it the process is the punishment. Even if those cases end up getting dismissed, those people have still been punished, right? They've had to pay subway fare or for parking and they've lost wages at work or maybe even lost their job because they had to keep showing up. A lot of them plead guilty so they don't have to keep doing that. Um, there's no reason for that. You know, if I, if I sued you because I slipped and fell um, on the sidewalk in front of where you live, you wouldn't have to show up to court for all of those court dates. You'd show up if there were a trial and that would be it. And we should, we should show the same sort of dignity and respect for people who are accused of crimes. And then the last thing is just, I think what we really need to do is we need to insist that people who are accused of crimes aren't treated as though they are guilty of crimes, either by the people within the criminal justice system or by the rest of us when we read these stories. I mean, when I read a story about a jury acquitting, even if it's a case that I've been following closely and I'm like, ooh, I think I would have voted to convict, I think to myself, but you know what? I think they did the best that they could. And it's easy for me to say I would have done something different. I actually didn't bear the moral burden of deciding in that case what should happen to someone. So maybe I should assume that they got it right. Yeah, one one thing we, we didn't get a chance to get into, I we've been seeing a bunch of cases recently where people um, are waiting for trial, waiting for um, you know, their hearings to go, and it keeps getting put off because of COVID and uh, a lot of places are have paused jury trials and now there's huge backups. I know San Francisco had a big uh lawsuit that uh, has gone uh, forward because some of their clients in the public defender's office have waited a year or two uh, to resolve their cases. And and so, I mean, that's tremendous pressure to just 
take a plea agreement so that they can get out. Um, and some people have uh, not done that. Uh, so um, I want to thank you for coming on uh, and uh, and sharing uh, your great book. Um, and I really enjoyed reading it. Punishment Without Trial, Why Plea Bargaining is a Bad Deal. Um, so thanks for coming on. It was my pleasure. It was so good to talk to you, David. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.